Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 35. The Cathedral. The Jenny Hanover's shattered gondola moaned like a flute as the west wind blew through it, carrying it swiftly away from London. Tom slumped exhausted at the controls, crumbs of broken glass clinging like grit to his face and hands. He tried to ignore the wild spinning of the pressure gauges as hydrogen leaked from the damaged envelope. He tried not to think about Pusey and Gench, burning inside their burning gondola, but every time he closed his eyes he saw their screaming faces, as if the black zeros of their open mouths were etched forever onto his eyeballs. When he raised his head he saw London far to the east. Something was happening to the cathedral, and torrents of pink and green fire were gushing from the engineerium. Slowly he started to understand what had happened. It was his fault, People must be dead down there, not just Pusey and Gench, but lots of people. And if he had not shot down the 13th floor elevator, they would still be alive. He wished he had never fired those rockets. It would be better to be dead himself than to sit here watching Top Tier burn and know that it was all his fault. Then he thought, Hester. He had promised her he would go back. She would be waiting down there among the fires. He couldn't let her down. He took a deep breath and leant on the controls. The engines choked back into life. The Jenny Hanover turned sluggishly into the wind and started inching back towards the city. Catherine moved like a sleepwalker through Paternoster Square, drawn towards the transformed cathedral. Around her the fires were spreading, but she barely noticed. Her eyes were fixed on the terrible beauty above her, that white cowl unfolding against the night sky, turning towards the east. She no longer felt afraid. She knew Cleo was watching over her, keeping her safe so that she could atone for the dreadful things father had done. The guards on the cathedral door were too distracted by the fires to pay much attention to a schoolgirl with a satchel. At first they told her to clear off, but when she insisted that her father was inside and flashed her crumpled gold pass at them, they simply shrugged and let her through. She had never been inside St Paul's before, but she had seen pictures. They hadn't looked anything like this. The pillared aisles and the high vaulted ceilings were still where they had always been, but the Guild of Engineers had sheathed the walls in white metal and hung argon globes in wire cages from the ceilings. Fat electric cables snaked up the nave, feeding power towards something at the heart of the cathedral. Catherine walked slowly forward, keeping to the shadows under the pillars, out of the way of the scores of engineers who were scurrying about, checking power linkages and making notes on clipboards. Ahead of her, the dais under the Great Dome was filled with strange machinery. A mass of girders and hydraulics supported the weight of the huge cobra hood that towered up into the night, 
and around its base stood a forest of tall metal coils, all humming and crackling in a slowly rising surge of power. Engineers were hurrying between them and going up and down the central tower on metal stairways, and many more were clustered around a nearby console like priests at the altar of a machine god, talking in hushed, excited voices. Among them she saw the Lord Mayor, and beside him, looking grim, was Father. She froze, safe in the shadows. She could see his face quite clearly. He was watching Croom and frowning, and she knew he would rather be outside helping with the rescue work, and only the Lord Mayor's orders kept him here. She forgot for a moment that he was a murderer. She wanted to rush over and hug him. But she was in Cleo's hands now, the agent of history, and she had work to do. She edged closer, until she was standing in the shelter of an old font at the bottom of the dais steps. From there she had a good view of what Croom and the others were doing. Their console was a cat's cradle of wires and flexes and rubberized ducts, and in the middle of it sat a little sphere, no bigger than a football. Catherine could guess what that was. Pandora Shaw had found it in a deep laboratory of lost America and brought it back with her to Oak Island, and Father had stolen it the night he murdered her. The engineers had cleaned and repaired it as best they could, replacing damaged circuits with primitive machines that they had cobbled together from stalkers' brains. Now Dr Splay sat in front of it, his fingers spidering over an ivory keyboard, typing up green, glowing sequences of numbers on a portable goggle screen. A second screen showed a murky image of the view ahead of London, crosshairs centred on the distant shield wall. The accumulators are charged, somebody said. There, Valentine, said Croom, resting a bony hand on her father's arm. We are ready to make history. But the fire's Croom. You can play at firemen later, snapped the Lord Mayor. We must destroy the shield wall now in case Medusa is damaged by the blaze. Splay's fingers kept clattering on the keyboard, but the other sounds of the cathedral faded away. The engineers were staring in awe at the coil forest, where weird, rippling wraiths of light were forming, drifting upwards towards the sky above the open dome with a faint, insectile buzz. Catherine began to suspect they didn't really understand this technology that her father had dug up for them. They were almost as awed by it as she. If she had run forward then, primed her bomb and flung it at the ancient computer, she might have changed everything. But how could she? Father was standing right beside the thing, and even when she told herself that he was not her father any more, and tried to weigh his life against the thousands about to die in Batmunk Gomper, she still could not bring herself to harm him. She had failed. She turned her face to the vaulted roof and asked, What do you want me to do? Why have you brought me here? But Cleo didn't answer. Croom stepped towards the keyboard. Give Medusa its target coordinates, he ordered. Splay's fingers rattled over the keys, typing in the latitude and longitude of Batmunk Gomper. Target acquired, announced a mechanical voice, booming from fluted speakers above Splay's station. Range, 130 miles and closing. Input clearance code, Omega. Dr Chubb produced a sheaf of thick plastic sheets, the laminated fragments of ancient documents. Faint lists of numerals showed through the plastic, like insects trapped in amber, as he flipped through the sheets until he found the one he wanted and held it up for Splay to read. 
but before Splay could begin typing in the code numbers, there was a confused babble of voices down by the main entrance. Dr Twix was there, with some of her stalkers close behind her. "'Hello, everybody!' she chirped, hurrying up the aisle and beckoning for her creations to follow. "'Just look what my clever babies have found for you, Lord Mayor. A real live anti-tractionist, just as you asked, though I'm afraid she's rather ugly.' Input clearance code Omega, repeated Medusa. The mechanical voice had not really changed, but to Catherine it sounded slightly impatient. Shut up, Twix, barked Magnus Croom, staring at his instruments, but the others all turned to look as one of the stalkers lurched up onto the dais and dumped its burden at the Lord Mayor's feet. It was Hester Shaw, her hands tied in front of her, helpless and sullen, and still wondering why the stalkers had not killed her straight away. At the sight of her ruined face, the men on the dais froze, as if her gaze had turned them all to stone. "'Oh, great Cleo,' whispered Catherine, seeing for the first time what father's sword had done. And then she looked from Hester's face to his, and what she saw there shocked her even more. The expression had drained from his features, leaving a grey mask, less human and more horrible than the girl's. This was how he must have looked when he killed Pandora Shaw and turned round to find Hester watching him. She knew what would happen next, even before his sword came singing from its sheath. No! she screamed, seeing what he meant to do, but her mouth was dry, her voice a whisper. Suddenly she understood why the goddess had brought her here and knew what she must do to make amends for father's crime. She dropped the useless satchel and ran up the steps. Hester was stumbling backwards, lifting her bound hands to ward off father's blow, and Catherine flung herself between them so suddenly that it was she who was in his path, and his sword slid easily through her, and she felt the hilt jar hard against her ribs. The engineers gasped. Dr Twix gave a frightened little squeak. Even Croom looked alarmed. Input, clearance, code, Omega, snapped Medusa, as if nothing at all had happened. Valentine was saying, no, shaking his head as if he couldn't understand how she came to be here with his sword through her. Kate, no, he stepped back, pulling the blade free. Catherine watched it slither out of her. It looked ridiculous, like a practical joke. There was no pain at all, but bright blood was throbbing out of a hole in her tunic and splashing on the floor. She felt giddy. Hester Shaw clutched at her, but Catherine shook her off. Father, don't hurt her, she said, and took two faltering steps forward and fell against Dr. Splay's keyboard. Meaningless green letters spattered the little goggle screen as her head hit the keys, and as Father lifted her and laid her gently down, she heard the voice of Medusa boom. Incorrect code entered. New sequences of numbers spilled across the screens. Something exploded with a sharp crack among the looping webs of cable. "'What's happening?' whimpered Dr Chubb. "'What's it doing?' "'It has rejected our target coordinates,' gasped Dr Chandra. "'But the power is still building.' Engineers rushed back to their posts, stumbling over Catherine where she lay on the floor, her head on father's lap. She ignored them, staring at Hester's face. It was like looking at her own reflection in a shattered mirror, and she smiled, pleased that she had met her half-sister at last, and wondering if they were going to be friends. She started to hiccup, and with each hiccup blood came up her throat into her mouth. A numb chill was spreading through her body, 
and she could feel herself beginning to drift away, the sounds of the cathedral growing fainter and fainter. Am I going to die? she thought. I can't, not yet, I'm not ready. Help me! Valentine bellowed at the engineers, but they were only interested in Medusa. It was the girl who came to his side and lifted Catherine while he ripped a strip from his robe and tried to staunch the bleeding. He looked up into her one grey eye and whispered, Hester, thank you. Hester stared back at him. She had come all this way to kill him, through all these years, and now that he was at her mercy she felt nothing at all. His sword lay on the ground where he had dropped it. No one was watching her. Even with her wrists bound, she could have snatched it up and stuck it through his heart. But it didn't seem to matter now. Dazed, she watched his tears fall, plopping into the astounding lake of blood that was spreading out from his daughter's body. Confused thoughts chased each other through her head. He loves her. She saved my life. I can't let her die. She reached out and touched him and said, She needs a doctor, Valentine. He looked at the engineers, clustering around their machine in a frantic scrum. There would be no help from them. Outside the cathedral doors, curtains of golden fire swung across Paternoster Square. He looked up and saw something red catch the firelight beyond the high windows of the starboard transept. "'It's the Jenny Hanover!' shouted Hester, scrambling to her feet. "'Oh, it's Tom! And there's a medical bay aboard!' But she knew the Jenny couldn't land amidst the flames of top tier. "'Valentine, can we get onto the roof somehow?' Valentine picked up his sword and cut the cords on her wrists. Then, flinging it aside, he lifted Catherine and started to carry her between the spitting coils to where the metal walkway zigzagged up into the dome. Stalkers reached out for Hester as she scurried after him, but Valentine ordered them back. To a startled beef-eater, he shouted, "'Captain, that airship is not to be fired upon!' Magnus Croom came running to clutch at his sleeve. "'The machine has gone mad!' he wailed. "'Quirk alone knows what commands your daughter fed it. "'We can't fire it and we can't stop the energy build-up. "'Do something, Valentine! You discovered the damn thing! Make it stop!' Valentine shoved him aside and started up the steps. Through the rising veils of light, the crackling static through air that smelled like burning tin. "'I only wanted to help London!' the old man sobbed. "'I only wanted to make London strong!' Chapter 36 The Shadow of Bones Hester took the lead, climbing up through the open top of the dome into smoky firelight and the shadow of the great weapon. Off to her right, the charred skeleton of the 13th floor elevator lay draped over the ruins of the Engineerium like a derelict roller coaster. The fire had spread to the Guild Hall and the planning department and the Hall of Records were blazing, hurling out firefly swarms of sparks and millions of pink and white official forms. St Paul's was an island in a sea of fire, with the Jenny Hanover swinging above it like a low-budget moon, scorched and listing, veering drunkenly in the updrafts from the burning buildings. She climbed higher, out onto the cobra hood of Medusa. Valentine came after her, She could hear him whispering to Catherine, his eyes fixed on the struggling airship. "'What idiot is flying that thing?' he shouted, working his way across the cowl to join her. "'It's Tom!' Hester called back and stood up, waving both arms and shouting, "'Tom! Tom!' It was the shawl that Tom saw first, the one that he had bought for her in Peritetiapolis. 
knotted around her neck now, streaming on the wind, it made a sudden flash of red, and he saw it from the corner of his eye and looked down and saw her there, waving. Then a black wing of smoke came down over her, and he wondered if he had only imagined that tiny figure inching out onto the cobra's hood, because it seemed impossible that anyone could survive in this huge fire that he had caused. He made the Jenny Hanover swoop closer. The smoke lifted, and there she was, flapping her arms with her long black coat and her long-legged stride and her ugly, wonderful face. Catherine opened her eyes. The cold inside her was growing, spreading from the place where the sword had gone in. She was still hiccuping, and she thought how stupid it would be to die with hiccups, how undignified. She wished Dog was with her. Tom! Tom! somebody kept shouting. She turned her head and saw an airship coming down out of the smoke, closer and closer until the side of the gondola scraped against Medusa's cowl and she felt the downdraft from its battered engine pods. Father was carrying her towards it and she could see Tom peering out at her through the broken windscreen, Tom who had been there when it all began, whom she had thought was dead. But here he was, alive, looking shocked and soot-stained, with a V-shaped wound on his forehead like the mark of some unknown guild. The gondola was much bigger inside than she expected. In fact, it was a lot like Cleo House, and Dog and Beavis were both waiting for her there. And her hiccups had stopped, and her wound wasn't as bad as everyone had thought. It was just a scratch. Sunlight streamed in through the windows as Tom flew them all up and up into a sky of the most perfect crystal blue, and she relaxed gratefully into her father's arms. Hester reached the airship first, hauling herself aboard through its shattered flank, but when she looked back, holding out her hand to Valentine, she saw that he had fallen to his knees and realised Catherine was dead. She stayed there, still with her hand outstretched, not quite knowing why. There was an electric shimmer in the air above the white metal hood. She shouted, Valentine, be quick! He lifted his eyes from his daughter's face, just long enough to say, Hester, Tom... Fly! Save yourselves! Behind her, Tom was cupping his hands to his ears and shouting, What did he say? Is that Catherine? What's happened? Just go! she yelled, and clambering past him, started switching all the engines that still worked to full power. When she looked down again, Valentine was dwindling away below, a dark shape cradled in his arms, a pale hand trailing. She felt like Catherine's ghost rising into the sky. There was a terrible pain inside her, and her breath came in sobs, and something wet and hot was spilling down her cheek. She wondered if she could have been wounded without noticing it, but when she put her hands to her face, her fingers came away wet, and she understood that she was crying, crying for her mum and dad and Shrike and Catherine, and even for Valentine, as the crackling light around the cathedral grew brighter, and Tom steered the Jenny Hanover away into the dark. Down in the gut, London's enormous motors suddenly cut out, without warning and all at once, doused by the strange radiations that were starting to sleet through the city's fabric. For the first time since it crossed the land bridge, the Great Traction City started to slow. In a hastily barricaded gallery in the London Museum, Chudley Pomeroy peered cautiously over the replica of the Blue Whale and saw that the squads of stalkers advancing on his last redoubt had all stopped in their tracks. Pale clouds of sparks coiling about their metal skulls like barbed wire. 
great work, he said, turning to his surviving handful of historians. We've won. Valentine watches the red airship fly away, lit by the flames of top tier and by the spitting forks of light that are beginning to flare around St Paul's. He can hear hopeless fire bells jangling somewhere below and the panic-stricken shouts of fleeing engineers. A halo of St Elmo's fire flares around Catherine's face and her hair sparks and cracks as he strokes it. He gently moves a stray strand which has blown into her mouth and holds her close and waits and the stormlight breaks over them, and they are a knot of fire, a rush of blazing gas, and gone, the shadows of their bones scattering into the brilliant sky. Chapter 37. The Bird Roads. London wore a wreath of lightning. It was as if the ray that should have reached out across a hundred miles to sear the stones of Batmont Gomper had tangled around the upper tiers instead, sending cataracts of molten metal splashing down the city's flanks. Explosions surged through the gut, heaving fast fragments of wreckage end over end into the sky like dead leaves in a gale. A few airships rose with them, seeking to escape, but their envelopes ignited and they shriveled and fell, small bright flakes of fire amid the greater burning. Only the Jenny Hanover survived, riding on the fringes of the storm, spinning and pitching as the shockwaves battered her, streamers of rainbow light spilling from her rigging and rotor blades. Her engines had all failed together in that first great pulse of energy, and nothing that Tom knew how to do would make them start again. He slumped down in what was left of the pilot's seat, weeping, watching helplessly as the night wind carried him further and further from his dying city. It's my fault, was all he could think to say. It's all my fault. Hester was watching too, staring back at the place where St Paul's had been, as if she could still see the after-images of Catherine and her father, lost in the brightness there. Oh no, Tom, no, she said. It was an accident. Something went wrong with their machine. It was Valentine's fault and Croom's. It was the engineer's fault for getting the thing to work and my mum's fault for digging it up in the first place. It was the ancient's fault for inventing it. It was Pusey's and Gensch's fault for trying to kill you and Catherine's for saving my life. She sat down beside him, wanting to comfort him but afraid to touch him, while her reflections sneered at her from fractured dials and blades of window glass, more monstrous than ever in the fluttering glare of Medusa. Then she thought, silly... He came back, didn't he? He came back for you. Trembling, she put her arms around him and pulled him close, nuzzling the top of his head, shyly kissing away the blood from the fresh wound between his eyebrows, hugging him tight until the dying weapon had spent itself and the first grey daylight crept across the plain. It's all right, Tom, she kept telling him. It's all right. London was far away motionless under banners of smoke. Tom found Miss Fang's old field glasses and focused them on the city. Someone must have survived, he said, hoping that saying it would make it true. I bet Mr Pomeroy and Clytie Potts are down there organising rescue parties and handing out cups of tea. But through the smoke, the steam, the pall of hanging ash, he could see nothing. 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 And although he swung the binoculars to and fro, growing increasingly desperate... All they showed him were the bony shapes of blackened girders and the scorched earth littered with torn-off wheels 
and blazing lakes of fuel, and broken tracks lying tangled on themselves like the cast-off skins of enormous snakes. Tom? Hester had been trying the controls, and had found to her surprise that the rudder levers still worked. The Jenny Hanover responded to her touch, turning this way and that on the wind. She said gently, Tom, we could try and reach back Montgomery. We'll be welcome there. They'll probably think you're a hero. But Tom shook his head. Behind his eyes, the 13th floor elevator was still spiralling towards top tier, and Pusey and Gench were riding their black, silent screams into the fire. He didn't know what he was, but he knew he was no hero. All right, said Hester, understanding. It took time to get over things sometimes, she knew that. She would be patient with him, she said. We'll head for the Black Island. We can repair the Jenny at the air caravanserai. And then we'll take the bird roads and go somewhere far away. The Hundred Islands or the Tannhauser Mountains or the Southern Iced Waste. I don't mind where as long as I can come too. She knelt beside him, resting her arms on his knees and her head on her arms, and Tom found that he was smiling in spite of himself at her crooked smile. You aren't a hero, and I'm not beautiful, and we probably won't live happily ever after, she said. But we're alive and together, and we're going to be all right. You've been listening to Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve on 1707 Radio. Bedtime Stories was produced and edited by Jamie Baker and read by Anna Mercer. Special thanks must go to Mrs Wormsley for her unswerving support of this production. We hope you've enjoyed listening and please tune in again for more Bedtime Stories. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.